We have been in our foundation series now. We've begun going through our statement of faith, talking about uh, what it is we believe and um, familiarizing ourselves with that. Uh, you, this will be the last week that you have the statement of faith in your bulletin. We'll have copies back on the welcome desk if you want one after this week. Uh, but I encourage you to be reading through there, marking it up like we've talked about, uh, making sure to note certain areas, especially the areas where you're unclear, you don't know exactly what it's saying, uh, especially if you can't think of, without having to look up the references, if you can't think of the Scripture or multiple Scriptures that speak to that part of our statement of faith, I would encourage you to become familiar with what the Bible says regarding that specific uh, theological statement. We're going to do a lot of that as we go through this series, but by no means are we going to cover and exhaust all of the verses that could possibly be used to back up each of these statements, or we'd be here for the next couple of years going through our statement of faith. So uh, even what we're doing is going to be more of a uh, topical uh, walk through our statement of faith. So I'd encourage you, especially if one hits your heart and you're like, man, I just don't know about that one, and or I, or, or I struggle uh, with that statement, whether it's believing that Jesus uh, or that the that Godhead can be three persons yet one, uh, that if you struggle with that, dig deeper, go deeper into that. Uh, part of the Christian life is Bible study, learning how to study the Bible. Uh, there are tons and tons of resources out there now for you, free Bible softwares, uh, all kinds of stuff that you can get your hands on. Uh, you have Right Now Media, if you ever want to just look up a book of the Bible and, and do like a, a study and, or multiple studies on that book and, and learn more about that. There's theological studies on there, tons of stuff, tons of ways to grow in each of these areas. And I, and I really do think there will be a time where we stand before the Lord one day and we have to give a, an account of how we handled His Word, of how we walked with Him, why we didn't know more about the faith we professed, how, how we could walk uh, as a Christian for decades and yet have no depth to our faith. And so I encourage you to dive into it. Um, this study, again, it's going to give you some good topics. Uh, I think we're not, this isn't a super heavy theological series, even though last week I know was uh, pretty heady and weighty uh, concept talking about three dimensions and two dimensions and all that fun stuff because I'm a nerd and I like to talk about it. Uh, I, I don't know how that rested with you for the rest of the week, but it certainly, uh, I love thinking in that way and in, in, in that concept. So, but I want to, we're going to dive right back into our statement of faith this morning. And uh, if you, you should have it in front of you. If you need one, there are more back in the foyer if you want another copy of our Statement of Faith. But you can always find it on our website and on the Alliance website, uh, the National Alliance, which is cmalliance.org if you want to look up the Statement of Faith. They're the exact same in both places. So uh, last week we covered the first couple of statements. Uh, I'm going to reiterate the last part of the one, and we're going to dive into uh, the rest of it. So uh, we got down to le- the last statement we did last week was where it says, Jesus Christ is the true God and true man. We talked a little bit about that. Uh, and then we're going to start basically with the next statement. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Um, and this is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 38. Again, we are switching up a little bit of, of the, uh, instead of the New Living Translation, we're going to be using the ESV through this series. Uh, I think it's a little more accurate, especially if you're doing an in-depth Bible study. I like to use a, a little bit more of a literal translation. So, in the ESV, Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 38. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, we see here uh, Christmas. If you don't realize that Christmas is like less than 20 like Saturdays away, isn't that awesome? Yay. Uh, I'm excited. I love Christmas. I can't wait. Uh, especially can't wait till the snow starts flying again and we get rid of this garbage humidity. Uh, I'm like dying this morning. But this is a story we read every Christmas. And I, I hope it never becomes just blah to you. Like, oh, yeah, the story of Jesus being born. It's always it's this amazing miracle that happens. And when we talk about Jesus being born uh, of the Holy Spirit, um, there's a lot of importance to that. So what does it mean that Jesus doesn't have an earthly father? We know that, obviously, Jesus has an earthly mother because he's uh, born of Mary, but he's not born of Joseph. Uh, and there's something to that. It means that Jesus isn't the product of human procreation and therefore not subject to the broken sin nature of man. Because he's not a product of uh, man and woman, he uh, doesn't have that brokenness that's inherent. Now, a lot of people have taken uh, some offshoot theological ideas from this, like, oh, well, that means that sin can only be carried by the man, uh, and that's not what this is saying. Uh, this is saying that God did something special. He created Jesus. Instead of man basically creating uh, life in the womb, God created. He started the life in the womb. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the world by disobedience. And so every child born after that is born into a sin nature, is born into a broken state where they are mastered by sin, and only because of Jesus can they be rescued from that. Uh, for Jesus to not be subject to sin and death, uh, he could be born of Mary, but not of Joseph, uh, because uh, that whole fertilization process and the whole thing. It had to be miraculous. It could not have started with Mary. It had to start with God. And so that's why the Holy Spirit overshadows uh, Mary and is the creation of that. So if you're not aware, this has been thought of by some to be uh, just a story that reflects the ancient accounts of the gods uh, having children with mortals. Uh, most of you are at least uh, somewhat familiar with like the Greek gods and all of the stuff that happens with them and Zeus and, and, and Hercules and like all of those things. Uh, but I want you to notice a few stark differences in this account versus those of, say, like the Greek gods and things like that. First, God does not have intercourse with Mary. That's not what's happening here. That's not what the Scriptures say. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit has intercourse with Mary and that Jesus is a product of that. Jesus was created by God through a miraculous work. Just like creation of Adam, uh, that's how Jesus is created. He's created from nothing and placed into the womb of Mary. That's how God does this. Uh, and that's important because... Uh, again, it's not just a product of 
a God and a mortal, you know, coming together and having intercourse like the many stories uh, of old uh, that you read about. Um, Second, Jesus isn't a demigod with superhuman powers. When you read those stories of all those gods, uh, that's how you get people like Hercules who had the strength of, you know, a thousand men and all of these things, and they, they could do these superhuman abilities because they're half God. Uh, Jesus was not half God. That's not what the story, and uh, that's not what the account of Jesus is. As a matter of fact, uh, instead of like these stories like Hercules and all of those people, uh, their, their stories are usually these stories of great heroic feats and all of these amazing things they can do with their powers. And Jesus' life is lived as a display of humility and a restraining of his power. It's not this demonstration of what happens when God and man come together. It's, it's a demonstration of what God can do through men. That was Jesus' life, to show us what it looks like to live as a human and to worship God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Also, Jesus, again, wasn't half God. He was a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. Does it make any rational sense if you know how to do math? Uh, those two don't add up to a hundred, um, and yet they're true that God, uh, Jesus can be both God and man at the same time. Uh, again, totally different from the old accounts. And lastly, the most obvious difference is the account of Jesus' birth is truth. It's actually true, whereas the Greek stories are all fiction. Uh, Those are obviously just made-up stories because there is no God uh, named Zeus or any of those things. God is the only God, Uh, and this is not a product of those uh, crazy stories. Uh, Our statement of faith also goes on to say, and the next statement, he died upon the cross, the just for the unjust. And that comes, 1 Peter 3, 18, says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It's part of exactly what we were celebrating this morning through communion, that Jesus did die on the cross for us, the just for the unjust. There's a lot in this simple statement, it seems, to unpack. First, Christ died on the cross. Uh, This might seem like common sense, but there are many uh, or some who would claim that Christ never actually died, that he just passed out uh, from the pain or he was never actually dead. Um, because they, they're trying to get their minds around how the whole resurrection story, and they try to say, oh, well, Jesus didn't actually die. He just passed out on the cross, and they took him off thinking he was dead. Um, the problem with that argument is, first, it's false. Uh, we know that Jesus died. Second, it doesn't make any sense when you understand the Romans. Uh, they were brutal and highly efficient at making sure people were dead. Uh, It's like one of the things they were really good at is killing people. And so they didn't make mistakes when it came to that. The the cross-type death, it was very, very thorough. Uh, It wasn't like, oops, you know, the injection didn't quite work. It didn't quite take. The electric chair didn't quite, you know, do its work. The, The cross is very thorough in the way that they do that. And if you read the account of Jesus' death on the cross, uh, you'll know that they pierced Jesus' side. Not only does this fulfill the Scripture that talks about it, but it was also to ensure that He had actually died. 
When they pierce Jesus' side, very likely they pierce him right where the heart is between the ribs, uh, and there's a reason for that in order to see what comes out. And because water and blood come out, uh, it's confirmation that Jesus is dead. But also, if you stab somebody in the heart with a spear, they're not just going to pass out. Uh, they will die if they hadn't already been dead. So it was like a double confirmation for the Romans. Again, they were very efficient at their jobs. They were really good at this. Uh, and so the, the chance that Jesus could have possibly not fully died is just not there. Uh, that, that type of death, that type of punishment was extraordinarily thorough. Uh, and Jesus did die. The second part of that line from our statement of faith was the just for the unjust. Now, this has huge significance for us because all of humanity is the unjust. None of us were just when we met God. None of us uh, were without sin or uh, deserving of heaven uh, when we met Jesus, when we heard the gospel. Uh, it doesn't matter if you came to know Christ or prayed the prayer at the age of three or four or 70. Uh, it doesn't matter. When you did that, you were not without sin. Uh, anybody who's had a two-year-old knows they just come like prepackaged with sin somehow. Uh, they just know how to do things they're not supposed to do, and no one has to tell them how to do it. Uh, And that's just part of our nature, of the way, because we're a product of Adam and Eve, uh, we are born into that. And so we are the unjust. We read elsewhere in Scripture, Romans 3.23, most of you probably know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. It's, it's not as if uh, you know, some of us were, were closer to God when we came to know Jesus. No, we were all so far from Him that we had no hope of rescue, no hope of salvation. Jesus, however, was without sin, which is why He was able to die on behalf of mankind. The next, uh, before we move on to the next line, uh, just clarifying how important it is that Jesus had to be just. He had to be perfect. If you knew the Jewish uh, practice of sacrifice, you could not bring a lamb that was lame. Uh, It was considered one of the worst offenses to try to bring a lamb or a goat or whatever you were sacrificing that had some type of defect with it. You had to bring the best of the best. You had to bring the purest of your flock. That was the only thing. And that, they knew, they understood, that still only covered the sin for a time. They knew that it, was, it would need to be repeated. This was a, some, uh, a lot of the sacrifices were yearly sacrifices, things like that, um, or repeated after certain offenses you had to go, uh, because it only covered. It did not remove. It didn't cleanse. And yet Jesus, being uh, 100% God and 100% man, was the perfect sacrifice for us. And we'll get more into that in just a minute. The next part of our statement of faith says, as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's taken from Hebrews 2.9. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is an important truth to understand. 
God didn't just wave our sin away and act like it didn't happen. Um, that's a big part of understanding the justness of God. He is perfect justice. He can't, because of who he is and his nature, he cannot just excuse it and act like it didn't happen. That's not what a just judge would do. Uh, we, I've talked about this with, with people because they don't understand how God, they'll say, how God could send people to hell. Man, that's the most ridiculous statement when you understand what God has done. He found us, he, he, first he created a perfect world for us, we messed it up, we broke it, we disobeyed him, and then he still sends Jesus to pay the debt, and all we need to do is accept that. And so using the illustration of, if you, you have somebody who's uh, you know, in a courtroom, convicted beyond a shadow of a doubt with all the evidence needed, uh, convicted of, of murder, uh, and yet the judge himself steps off and says, uh, though you're found guilty, I'm going to take the punishment for your sin. And you have the person saying, nah, I'm good. Who would look at that judge and say, how dare you send that person to, you know, whatever it is, to, to die because, of their, because of they were found guilty? And anybody would look at you and say, what do you mean? He's, he's offering to pay for it. He's offering to substitute himself for your punishment. And you're saying no. There's in no way would anybody think that that judge was sending that person to their death. Uh, And that's exactly what Jesus has done. God, though he must, because he is just, he has to declare us guilty. Because we are guilty. And we can all acknowledge that. Yet, he steps from his throne. He comes as Jesus Christ. And he pays our debt. And all we literally have to do is accept that and say, yes, I accept the payment for my sin. That is Jesus substituting himself. Jesus became our substitute. Our punishment that we deserved fell on him. The penalty of death that we owed was transferred to the sinless Christ. And he died so our sin debt could be fixed could be paid. Even though Jesus was sacrificed for all humanity, people are not cleansed, though, of their sin unless they accept the gift that God has offered them through Jesus Christ. This is a big difference between some who have uh, bought into this idea of universalism that says, well, everybody goes to heaven. When Jesus paid their debt, he paid their debt, and they can't owe anything because Jesus paid it. Yet that's just not what Scripture says. It says that, yes, Jesus paid the debt, but we still have to accept it. God is not going to force that on anyone. He is a just God. There must be a process. Though the debt has been paid, we must accept it. If not, our debt transfers back to us upon death. It is now ours again. And we stand before Christ not redeemed with our debt not paid, Not because Jesus didn't pay it, but because we didn't receive it. We didn't accept it. Well, again, uh, talking through the VBS, I just love, you know, uh, the the way that kids respond to things. And uh, I was offering, you know, just using the illustration of trying to offer them something. Uh, And even they were able to, you know, process, like, it's not theirs until they, they receive it. You know, we talked about how you, uh, at Christmas time, you know, their parents put gifts under the tree and even though that gift is there, it's already purchased. It has their name on it. It's still not theirs 
until they open it and they receive that gift. Uh, And so uh, that is where we stand with salvation between us and God, that we must receive that gift. And that's where a lot of, you know, the the praying the prayer thing comes from. Uh, If you don't know, that kind of started in the early 1900s. That hasn't always been the case, you know, praying the prayer. Some of you might not have prayed the prayer. Um, That's okay. You're still a Christian. Just because you didn't pray the prayer doesn't mean you're not saved. Um, That was a man-made creation uh, in the early 1900s. It really is, though, the process of acknowledging our sin and receiving salvation. And we'll talk a little bit more again about that in just a moment. Because the next part of our statement says, and all who believe in him are justified on the ground of his shed blood. Romans 5.9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are justified by the shed blood of Christ. Uh, again, it's what communion's about. It's about acknowledging that his blood was shed for us, just like all the other Jewish sacrifices. An animal was brought. It's, most of the time, its throat was cut. The blood was poured out, and they used that blood. To, they sprinkled you know, the altar with the blood. Uh, blood had to be shed. Death had to occur in order to pay for sin, in order to even cover for a time sin. Death was required. But that is still a gift that we must receive by confessing and believing. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's really that simple. I love that truth about Christianity. It's so different from every other faith because it doesn't require work for us to know Christ, to be saved. It doesn't require great effort. It doesn't require us to clean our act up. It doesn't require us to have our stuff together and all of the things that so many other religions have uh, as a requirement for the hope of possible salvation. Jesus says, "I I paid it already. It's already done. All you have to do is say yes. You just have to receive it. Like this says, you just believe that you are a sinner Believe that God paid that debt and confess Jesus as Lord. And that's it, just receiving Him as uh, who He really is. But it is necessary because the, uh, the destiny of every human is death. We must receive it. He will not force that upon us. It's not like you know, people are going to die and show up and God's like, hey, you know, I know you didn't live your life at all for me and you denied me your whole life, but guess what? I paid your debt already, so go ahead into heaven. It's not how it works. The Bible is very clear. There will be some that stand before him, and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a relational aspect to it. We must know him, and he must know us. Uh, But every human is on their way to death. Romans, again, 3, 23 to 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation his, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's so much here, I don't want to keep beating uh, a dead horse here, but uh, it's so important for us to acknowledge that there is a, 
a part of salvation that requires us. It requires our response. It doesn't require our church attendance. It doesn't require our tithe. It doesn't require our Christian service. It requires our humility to humbly admit we don't have what it takes to get to heaven. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We'll never work it off. We just need Jesus. We are in desperate need of Jesus. At the time of Jesus' birth, the practice of temple sacrifice was a central part of the Jewish faith. If you watch, especially, you know, some of the movies and things, I know The Chosen does a really good one on a guy trying to bring, you know, his lamb to be slaughtered and things like that. Uh, If you couldn't bring a sacrifice, it was a big deal. It was not a small matter that you couldn't partake in the sacrifices. They viewed that as their connection to God. It was absolutely necessary, but it was a constant and repeated process. It wasn't like you prepared everything for that one time in your lifetime that you sacrificed an animal and then you were good for the rest of your life. That's not how, how it was. Jesus, Jesus shed blood, however, was a once-for-all sacrifice. Everything they did was pointed toward that moment. It was all to prepare them for when Jesus would sacrifice himself. But Jesus didn't stay dead, however. In our statement of faith, next says, he arose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Most of us know that this is what Easter is all about. That's what we celebrate at Easter is that Jesus, though he died, he fully was dead. He rose again. He was resurrected from the dead. Notice that this statement also talks about how it was according to Scripture. Uh, We've talked about this before, but I want to just hit this point again because uh, I actually just shared this again with, uh, on Friday at the end of VBS, I got to share the gospel with all the parents uh, and the kids again, um, and I just, I love, I love math, as you, I talked about last week, love math, uh, and so I love the odds and the probabilities, and we've talked about this before, but uh, one guy did all, you know, all the math, all the numbers, uh, did the probabilities of just one man fulfilling eight of the prophecies. And what he did in that was he took eight prophecies about Jesus, about who he was supposed to be, where he was supposed to be born. What he did was he took out any of the prophecies that had to do with miraculous events, like Jesus creating water out of wine or things like that. Like that took a miracle for Jesus to be born uh, in Bethlehem didn't take a miracle. A lot of people were born in Bethlehem. It happened. Um, But for eight of those prophecies to become true, the odds of that happening were one in 10 to the 28th power. Anybody remember what the number is? That's right, man. Lexi's good. She was at VBS. So, Uh, Hundred quadrillion, which is not a number that any of us have the ability to process. Uh, we might be able to look at the number. So it's basically one followed by 28 zeros. Um, you know, to give reference, a million is one followed by uh, six zeros. Am I right? Yeah, six zeros. Billion is nine zeros. Trillion is 12 zeros. So keep going until there's 28 zeros. Uh, 
And if you've never heard somebody do the math of like second, you know, seconds, how many, you know, how, how long ago was it a million seconds ago? How, you know, a, tr- a billion seconds ago, a trillion seconds ago? It's, it's crazy how exponential those numbers grow beyond what we can fathom. So he says one in tw- and 10 to the 28th power. That's the odds that Jesus could have fulfilled just eight of the prophecies. Uh, and to think about it is if you took 100 quadrillion quarters, uh, it would be enough uh, to cover the state of Pennsylvania in quarters, 12 feet deep. That's how many 100 quadrillion quarters are. Anybody ever drive across like 76 or 80 across Pennsylvania? And it just seems to go on and on and on. Uh, Every now and then we'll be driving, you know, whether it's to Jersey or somewhere else, we're just driving through like the hills of Pennsylvania and looking around thinking, can you imagine 12 feet of quarters covering this entire state? And then you mark one of those quarters and you put it in that pile of hundred quadrillion quarters. And then someone else just walks across the state of Pennsylvania, reaches down and grabs one quarter. The chances that that one would be the one that you mark is the same likelihood that one person could fulfill eight prophecies. To me, that blows my mind, trying to think about how improbable that is, uh, that that could happen. For a long time, the uh, only answer that uh, the unbelieving scientific community could come up with uh, was that those prophecies were obviously just written after Jesus lived, uh, they, and then written as if, made it, made it seem to look like they were written before Jesus lived, um, because even the unbelieving scientific community realized it's not possible. There's no possible way that Jesus could, all those prophecies could have been written about Jesus uh, and that he could fulfill them. And that was the, the thing that they would go with until the Dead Sea Scrolls were unearthed and they, they found these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls and they were proven to have been some hundreds of years older than Jesus and they really had nothing to say then. What do you say to that? these scrolls, which have obviously been written and talk about Jesus. And, and here's the thing. There weren't just eight prophecies written about Jesus in these Dead Sea Scrolls. There were hundreds of prophecies written about Jesus. Just on the day he died, he fulfilled over 27 prophecies. There's not a number that can quantify the, um, the, even just the one day of his life, the, the day he died. There's not a number that can quantify how unlikely it is that uh, Jesus could have lived and been who he said he was and that these prophecies were written. And I think that just boggles my mind to understand how awesome God is in that, that part of the process that, uh, yes, uh, if you can believe that these prophecies are, and it doesn't take much belief to believe that these prophecies were written about Jesus, Jesus lived, these things were true about him, uh, and how unlikely that was, it's a pretty easy leap to Jesus was resurrected. Something that we don't have a frame of reference for, that we can't fathom how someone can come back to life, uh, it's a pretty easy jump when you understand something like the prophecies and how God you know, saw the coming hundreds and hundreds of years ahead and things were prophesied about Jesus that came true. The next part of our statement of faith says, He is now at the right hand of majesty on high as our great high priest. And that comes from Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in that, in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
Jesus is the great high priest. Again, if you were to research the uh, Jewish customs and the temple and the priests and all of that, you'll know that uh, the best of the best priests in their current culture uh, was known as the high priest. This was like the highest position in Jewish cultural significance. There was nothing higher than the high priest. And he, the high priest, only entered the Holy of Holies, if you understand the temple, as they had multiple sections depending on uh, how, who you were born to and what tribe of Israel you were, um, determined how close you could get to the center uh, of, of the temple. Uh, it wasn't really the center, but the in, innermost parts of the temple. Uh, and then there was this curtained off section called the Holy of Holies, where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was held, and it was this holy ground where the presence of God would come down just once a year and for the briefest moment. And the high priest was the only person allowed into that curtained-off room, and he was only allowed in one time a year, also for the briefest of moments. And if you don't know their customs, is they would tie a rope to the high priest because they thought, man, if he does anything wrong, while he's in there, he will drop dead. God will just strike him dead. And they, and they couldn't go in to get him, so they tied a rope to him and so in case they needed to pull him out. Um, that's how seriously they took the presence of God, that the high priest would only enter for just a moment. And this is saying that Jesus sits on the throne of divine majesty for all time. He's not like the high priest of Jesus' time that only entered the presence of God momentarily for the briefest of moments. Jesus sits on the throne of majesty. Again, this is another uh, reference to that Jesus isn't just a really good guy. He's not just a really good prophet. Uh, They wouldn't be allowed. Even the best of their prophets, the best, the high priest, the holiest person in the nation couldn't manage to stand in the presence of God for more than just a moment. And yet Jesus, for all of eternity, sits on the throne in that presence. Just as the priest's role uh, in, in the Bible times was to intercede for those under their care, that's what a priest did, Jesus intercedes on our behalf to the Father. We read many scriptures about that, that Jesus intercedes for us. The next part of our statement says, He will come again to establish His kingdom, righteousness, and peace. And that comes from Matthew 26, 64. It says, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. We know Jesus is coming back. There's no question. He's made it very clear to us. He is coming back. He told us He is. There are a lot of differing beliefs regarding His timing. Uh, If you've been around long enough, you know that there are some, I think the theological term is wackadoodles, who uh, like to try to predict when Jesus is coming back. They try to pick like a date and a time, and they're they're guaranteeing you that it's going to be here, and then that date passes, and they're like, ah, I read it wrong. It's this date. And it's like, come on, man. Uh, The Bible is very clear. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We just know He is. There's no doubt of that. Um, but we also know that there are some things that need to take place, like the gospel is going to go to the whole earth. It's one of the reasons I'm so happy and proud to be a part of the Alliance, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance, because uh, over 80% of our people and our resources go to places where the gospel is illegal. 
where you can't legally enter the country to proselytize or to tell people about Jesus. That's where our efforts are going because we know the gospel needs to get to the whole earth before Jesus returns. We have to get it to every people group across the world. However, as we'll get to later in our statement of faith, uh, some can argue that that's already true. The gospel is across the earth, and so Jesus could come back at any moment. And I would also agree with our statement of faith that the return of Christ is imminent, that at this very moment Jesus could return. Everything has been fulfilled that needs to be fulfilled. And as we'll also talk about later in our statement of faith, uh, as a premillennial, which we'll definitely be covering that, uh, it means that you know, things are just going to get worse and worse. Society is going to continue to decline more and more until Jesus returns. And I don't know about you, but I look around and I'm like, uh, things are declining pretty rapidly. Things are getting to the point where Jesus is coming back soon, and it might be today. Uh, and I know some would argue, well, oh, we've been saying that for hundreds or thousands of years. It's never been less true than the next day. Jesus could always come back today. We do know, though, that nobody can know the exact timing of Jesus' return. Matthew twenty four thirty six says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And this verse might be a little confusing to you because we talked about last week how Jesus and the Father are one. So how could Jesus not know something that the Father knew? But then if you remember, we also talked about for Jesus to come as a human, he had to put off much of his attributes. And it seems as you read Scripture, it seems pretty obvious that there are uh, areas and things that Jesus purposely removed from his ability to know in the moment. But obviously, when he returns to the Father, this statement wouldn't be true of Jesus sitting in heaven. Uh, But it's very clear, only the Father knows when Jesus is coming back. And uh, later on, verse 44, it says, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We must be ready. I don't know about you, but sometimes... uh, we can stack up a whole list of IOUs to God. We can have the, oh, well, God, I, you know, if, if Jesus came back today, would we stand before God and like, oh, I was just waiting until this happened, and then I was really going to serve you, God. I was just waiting until I got that job, until I finished school, until I retired, and then I was really going to give it my all, God. And he's saying, man, I, I didn't call you to do something in the future. You know, the IOUs won't matter when we stand before Jesus. He'll want to know what we did with our journey with Him, with our relationship with Him today. That's what matters. That's what's important, is how are we walking with Him today? Because we don't know when He's coming back. But the Scriptures in multiple places tell us we must be ready. I've told you, I I know I told you the story before, how uh, my brothers and I used to, uh, my parents, when we would come home from school, it was not rare or odd to come home from school and find a note on our door. Uh, now, you do have to understand, we lived way out in the middle of the woods. Like, my driveway was like a quarter of a mile long, just the driveway. And so we were surrounded by nothing but woods, and we'd walk up to the house, and there'd be a sign on the door that said, uh, hey, we're going to be back at whatever time, like, stay in the yard and don't get dirty. Like, that was likely to happen. I mean, we're little redneck kids running around in the woods, like, with our school clothes on. They're ruined. I, you know, those clothes are done. Uh, there's no, there's, if you've ever seen boys play, there's no possibility that they're going to play and not get dirty. Uh, and so, you know, f- five of us 
playing in the yard together, uh, first off, a fight's going to break out, and second off, everybody's getting dirty, uh, and maybe some blood. But what we would do sometimes in order is like, well, we can either get dirty, or we can break in the house and stay clean. Uh, and so a lot of times we'd break in the house, but there was always a lookout person, because we had to be ready for when they came home. We had, you know, we're always ready to jump out the windows and act like we were sitting in the yard, and somehow stayed perfectly clean the entire time that they were gone. Uh, and that's what I always think of when I think of like staying ready, staying ready for when Christ returns. It's like, you got to be ready for when he returns. Uh, now, we were always fearful of, of punishment, but when Christ returns, my hope and prayer is that all of us can celebrate that, and there will be crowns to be given, and there will be a celebration of, of the way that we journeyed with him, the way that we walked with him, the way that we served him, that we will be so excited for his return, not fearful of his return, because we know that we just have a stack of IOUs. The order of the end time events, uh, we're going to discuss in greater detail later on in the Statement of Faith when we talk about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism, and most of you have no idea what those even mean, uh, but we'll cover those. We'll talk about those later as we get into the Statement of Faith. But I want us, like always, to ask ourselves, so what? So what? We talked about these theological principles, these important theological concepts, but what does that mean for us? What should that change for us as we study this? Well, first, it should change your life to know that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. Just about every single one of us, we have that negative self-talk. The enemy tries to remind us as often as he can how we're garbage and how we're a terrible person. And if everybody knew the stuff that we've gotten into, if everybody knew how sinful we were, if everybody knew how dysfunctional our marriage was, they wouldn't even invite us back to church. And that's what we believe. We hear those things constantly playing in our head we, because we tend to pull our identity from what we do, not who Christ is. And the Bible is very clear. Our identity comes from Him. He set our identity when He died on the cross. When He lived a perfect life and He died for us, that sets our identity. He set our price. One of the things that's always boggled my mind, I'm not an artist. I know some of you are, and you love art and those kind of things. Uh, art has no intrinsic value. Its value is entirely based on how much somebody will pay for it. They are the ones that determine the value of that painting because they're the ones that set the value by how much they're going to pay. If they want to pay a million dollars for it, guess what? That painting's worth a million dollars because of the price that it was paid. And the same is true for us. Jesus paid a price for us, and that determined our value. And so there's not a person that walks this earth who doesn't have that same level of value. And so I think, you want to talk about so what? Well, we all get to walk in that identity statement. We are His. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are children of the high, most high God. And then we get to live for Him. It's another awesome thing. There's no obligation. You cannot earn salvation. That's another part of the so what for me as I, as I look through our statement of faith. I, I realize as you read those scriptures, you'll never earn back the right to be a Christian. Yet some, so many of us live like that. We live like, oh, well, I have, to, I have to go to church. I have to serve God. I have to work in the nursery. I have to do this. I have to do that in order to earn my salvation, in order to pay God back. You can't pay him back. A debt so large, you'll never even come close. You'll never scratch a dent in that debt. We get to serve Him, though. We can do it out of gratitude 
not obligation. And that's a beautiful part of it. Our life should also reflect the reality that Jesus could come back any day and that we would be excited when he came back. Not nervous, not wishing. We just had one more day, one more week, one more year to get our life right, to get things in order. I, I, I forget what I was watching or listening to this week, and it said something like, uh, you know, imagine if, it might have been a post on Facebook, I don't know, uh, but it said something to the effect of like, can you imagine knowing when your last day would be and what you would do? And it's like, Jesus did know what his last day was. And look at the way he lived his last day. Look at the way he served. Look at the way that he honored people, forgave people, and lived always for the glory of God. What if our life looked like that? Again, not in like a shame, guilt kind of way, but in a hopeful, future-looking way. And what would our life look like if we decided we were going to live like that? To live a life fully for Him, totally in service to Him, totally focused on His kingdom. What a blessing that would be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. How awesome it is to look into Your Word and to understand who you are, the fact you have revealed yourself to us and you have made yourself known to us, that we can know the God of creation. What a blessing it is to study the scriptures together, that we can come together as a family and study your word. How awesome it is to know you, to walk with you. How awesome it is that for the rest of our life we could devote ourselves to the Scriptures and to learning more about You, and there will always be more to know. There will always be more to learn. And yet we get, we get to do this together. Lord, I pray You would continue to increase our passion, increase our desire to know You more. And Lord, I pray each and every one of us would live out of our identity this week that we would all acknowledge who we are because of the price you paid for us. And we would live in a way that no matter when you came back, we would be found ready for you. Maybe it'll be this week, and what a blessing that will be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week. And don't forget, there's always, on Communion Sundays, there's a plate in the back for our benevolent fund, which helps people in need. And if you ever need prayer for healing, anything like that, you can make your way to the front uh, and we'll pray for you.